Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 34.1 to 35.15. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. <clears throat> but if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamer and Hamer's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So Hamer and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamer and his son, Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamer and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household." But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. 
Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he, when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bukuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. So the way it works is you pick a date and then you preach on that date. I didn't pay attention to Genesis 34, 35. I didn't know what that was about. Oh boy, yeah, <laughs> found out. Uh, well, my name is Rob Spikestrom, the pastor of discipleship. Um, there are passages in the Bible where you read it and uh, you shrink back from embarrassment by the description, the starkness of the report of sin. Uh, but even worse, the shamefulness of how God's people respond to that sin. And we have both of those here in chapter 34. Wherever the Bible contains this kind of material that reflects badly, not merely upon the sins of humanity in general, but upon uh, God's people and, and the way that they have responded, I think is evidence of the divine and not just merely the human origin of scriptures. See, if you want to impress people with your religion, you suppress this. Um, but that's not what we find here. And so we are told in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be complete um, for every good work. Well, my wife, uh, by the way, this week, she kept on saying, uh, uh, less is more, less is more, less is more. I don't know why she was saying that, so we'll find out here. Three weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 1 through 3, and there we found that in the darkness of man's original uh, rebellion, Adam and Eve rejecting God's 
uh, light of God's command in order to be law unto themselves. God saw that rebellion, and rather than passing the judgment that God had on them to condemn them to uh, death, rather than that, he promised a future Savior, and then in substitution, he killed an animal, and, and blood was shed, and, and God clothed Adam and Eve, prevailing light in a dark time. Then two weeks ago, we find humanity, when given over to the desire to be independent of God and a law unto themselves, we find humanity in such a state of wickedness that the writer of Genesis says, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so in that state, we read on Genesis 6, 6, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so he was determined to start over uh, with anyone who would heed his warning of judgment, coming judgment, and trust in his way of escape. And so he started with one man and his family, the man Noah. And what we read in Genesis 6, 6, 8 says that Noah found favor, that is grace, in the eyes of the Lord. And so for 120 years, Noah built an ark. He preached of the coming judgment and of salvation, but no one responded. In that dark time, God preserved his promise of a future savior. In the darkest of time, there is prevailing light. Then last week, uh, we have Abram, a descendant of Noah, living like so many of Noah's descendants, and paganism. He is a pluralist, a worshiper of many gods, but primarily the moon god. And he is a testimony of what man does when they look out on creation. Rather than worshiping the creator, uh, they worship the creation. And it seems, again, all is lost when it comes to God's promise to send a savior. Yet, God calls Abram out of his paganism to follow him, the only true God. It is an effectual call. It produces faith of what is required of us. He's faith. And so Abram is then given a new name, Abraham, which reflects God's promise that he will be a father of, the, of a multitude. And that's what Abraham means. Well, now in our passage, we're two generations down. We've uh, removed from Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was passed on then to Isaac and then to Isaac to Jacob. But again and again, it seems that the Genesis author wants us to understand this blessing came to Abraham and his descendants not because they were deserving, not because they earned God's favor, uh, not because they were smarter than others or had some extraordinary faith. Rather, they are blessed because of the sovereign grace of God. Of God. No, no better picture of this uh, than this man, Jacob. So, this morning, what I want us to see is in the dark days of regrets, God's light still prevails. In the dark days of regret, God's light uh, prevails. Regrets. It's a nasty uh, reality about life. You don't have to live long to have regrets. And the longer you live, it accumulates more and more regrets, so much like uh, we have the, uh, the debris that builds up behind a dam. And so the words of regrets, they, they, they haunt us, and they sound something like this. If I could live that moment over again, I would have done things completely differently. Or in a more cumulative way, if I could live my life over again, I would have done it differently. We all have regrets. 
And most of that regret comes as a result of sin, either directly or indirectly. Chapter 34 is full of regrets. Let's pray. Father, um, as we enter into your word, we would pray that you would do a work, you would take your word and you would apply it to our lives in ways that we need it. Father, um, we are a people of regret and we need hope. We need light. And so we would pray that as we then enter into chapter 35, you would help us to see where our hope lies and we'd rest and enjoy and rejoice in this season that we have one who has come to save us from our regret. So please work, we pray this day. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, let's look at the dark days of regrets of uh, sin. Now to understand Jacob's regret of sin, you, you need to go back to, we need to go back to Jacob's birth because it was there where we find the particular nature or we might say the particular flavor of his fallen character. Jacob is a fraternal twin, uh, fraternal twins. Uh, they share the same home <laughs> for nine months. But when they come out, they typically do not look alike. And this was certainly the case with Jacob and his brother Esau, Esau being born first. There's a description of their birth that reveals something about the particular bent in Jacob's personality. Genesis 25, 24 begins this way. The first, Esau, came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. Uh, can you imagine that? That must have been awful. So they called his name Esau, which uh, probably is a reference to the redness of his hair. Then afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Now Jacob literally means he takes by the heel. And so while Esau is named for his appearance, interestingly, Jacob is named for his action. And not a flattering action. He, he's a grasper. He's, a, he's grasping. Uh, and it's a wordplay meaning to overtake or to take another, another's place. And so G Jacob's life was bent on besting others. Every relationship was a competition for him to better the other person. And we know people like this, right? Um, you're in a conversation, uh, you're in a conversation with them and, and all of a sudden, oh no, but hear this. You, you have a story? Oh, I've got a better story than that. Or they have the better grade and they're going to let you know that they have the better grade. Or they have the better job and even if they don't have the better job, they're going to argue that they do have the better job. Or they live in the better neighborhood. They always have an argument of why they have, what they have is better than what you have because life is a competition. It's a life of striving. But no one can be the best at everything. And that was true of Jacob. And so where Jacob could not compete, he would turn to deceit. Jacob's go-to to get ahead was deception. So much so that when his family and friends heard his name, Jacob, the name became synonymous in their minds to deceiver. He gave just the right amount of details and neglected other details in order to get the response he wanted. And if that didn't work, he would just simply lie. 
Well, this was true even with the promises of God. See, God had promised that Jacob was the one who was going to receive the blessing that came to Abraham, Isaac, and then down to Jacob. And so God had promised this, and yet this had not occurred yet. And so uh, when it didn't work out in, in Jacob's time, and he, he thought that maybe that promise was uh, in jeopardy, Jacob then did this. He deceived and lied to his elderly, nearly blind father, Isaac. And got the blessing that he wanted. See, it seemed to, th- to Jacob that nothing was sacred, not even God's promises, when it came to his deception. He was a sinner. And he was a deceiver. And it was out of his bent, deceiving, that Jacob had a lot of regret. A significant part of the piercing pain of regret is that it is self-inflicted. Because uh, we choose to sin. We choose our way rather than God's way. We think we know better. So when we catch up to Jacob in chapter 34, he is probably in the middle of his life, if not just north of the middle, and he's fearful of his older, bro- older twin brother, Esau, of whom he has stolen the blessing. But rather than finding, interestingly enough, as he returns back to Cain, rather than finding a revengeful brother, he actually finds a reconciling uh, brother. So Esau, what he does is he invites his twin brother to go uh, to live alongside him in a mountainous region, uh, Seir, in the nation of Edom, named after his brother. But Jacob is not thrilled with this offer. We don't know why, but it might have been out of continued fear for him or maybe just a lack of interest. But he doesn't want to offend Esau, and so he tells Esau exactly what he wants to hear. Back in chapter 33, he says, yeah, yeah, you, you go on to Sierra, uh, and I'll, I'll catch up with you there. But Jacob had no intention of going to Sierra. Matter of fact, his actions spoke clearly. He went north the opposite direction. Of Esau. And so this is where he settles down, verse 18 of chapter 33. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And it is there where he buys land, he settles down, and he builds an altar for regular worship. And so it is out of another lie that we have this setting. Four regrets. And I want to point out four regrets that we find in chapter 34. And I'm going to call them four lessons because I think we can learn some things from these regrets. So four lessons. Lesson number one, home is where the Lord is. Home is where the Lord is. See, we hear the phrase, home is where the heart is, but that is not true of a follower of God. Because many times our own hearts cannot be trusted. Rather, home is where the Lord is. And so the question we always need to be asking ourselves is, where do you want me to live? And it seemed to be that Jacob was not asking that question. And so you think about it within your own life. If, if you're thinking about moving someplace and moving out of the Quad Cities, the first question you need to be asking is, where does the Lord really want me to live? And if I'm going to be moving there, am I going to be finding a, a Christ-centered, gospel-speaking uh, kind of church there? What kind of ministry is God going to be giving me there? Or perhaps you're thinking about your own neighborhood, and you're moving out of one neighborhood into another one. You need to be asking the question, does the Lord want me to be moving into this new neighborhood? Am I going to go there for status or service? 
Or, or perhaps you're thinking about moving out of your neighborhood and you haven't been really serving anybody, you haven't been missional with any of your neighbors, and you think, well, you know what? When I get to that new neighborhood, I'm gonna be missional. Probably not. In fact, we need to be thinking about where we should be maybe moving in terms of our neighborhoods or are there other believers there that we might be coming alongside to be renewing that particular neighborhood, asking the question, where should I live? Where does the Lord want me to live? Jacob wasn't doing that, and so he moved to this regretful place called Shechem. Lesson number two. Fathers, lead your families. If you don't, there will be regrets. Parents have the responsibility for their children, and particularly the head of the family. And so we are told that Dinah got into trouble when she, verse one there, uh, she went out to see the women of the land. Now, we don't know why Dinah went out. We, we don't know if she went out actually to look for trouble. Maybe not. I mean, you know, Jacob, he has 11 sons and one daughter, Dinah. You know, perhaps she's just looking for genuine female companionship. The problem is, is that she goes out alone. And seemingly, Jacob is unaware, verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And I don't need to say what that means. You get it. Huge regrets. But what strikes me most about Jacob is his absence. One, he fails to protect Dinah. Two, he has provided uh, his sons with a kind of disjointed walk with God. No doubt his children have picked up on his lie to Esau. And yet, he, what does he do? He sets up a, a, an altar to have regular worship. And so they know their father's less than noble ways. Yeah, I, I'm going to worship, but uh, not the rest of the week. Thirdly, when he learns of his daughter's tragic fate, did you see that in verse five? Look at his response there. It says he holds his peace. Now, he may have been doing that in wisdom, but what stands out to me is his loss of outrage in comparison uh, to his sons there in uh, verse seven. Look at verse seven. Uh, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now, I want you just to note two things there in verse 7. First of all, look at that word indignant. This, was, uh, the, this is how the men of uh, the, the, the brothers uh, responded. They were indignant. Now, it's the same Hebrew word that was used to describe God's attitude towards sinful humanity before the flood. See, remember, I read for you Genesis 6.6. 6, uh, it says there that God was grieved in his heart. That's the same word. Jacob's sons seemed to have a proper emotional reaction to what had happened to their sister. And Jacob, not so much. And then secondly, in verse 7, the sons recognized there's been a serious breach in God-ordained relationships. So look again at uh, verse 7. And what we have there is we have Shechem has done an outrageous thing. And then you see at the end there, such a thing must not be done. 
So there is a proper outrage when we learn of someone offending God-given standards. And Jacob seemed to have made a bit of peace with sin. And it's tempting in the day-to-day battle with sin to resign and to make peace with sin with regretful consequences. Well, when Hamar comes with a proposal of marriage between his son and Dinah, Jacob says, nothing. And then when the discussion gets underway, for some inexplicable reason, it is the sons who are carrying on the negotiations. So it seems to me that Jacob is backing out of the picture. And presumably, he does not even know that they are going to, his sons are going to exact revenge until after the, tro- the atrocity, so that when he learns of it, he weakly whines all the way to the end of chapter 34, verse 30. He weakly whines uh, to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the, to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Now, I don't know um, why Jacob is such a failure here. Certainly spiritual poverty, uh, weakness of character, probably a combination of those things. But I do know why many fathers fail to lead. And I know because here's why. Here's how I've felt. I have neglected my family for the immediate feedback of applause I get at work. I have neglected my family because of my laziness. I come home to, from work to my wife and my children. I don't want to deal with this. I have neglected my family out of the fear that I wouldn't know how to respond spiritually. I have neglected my family out of more laziness. And that is not doing the hard mental work of studying scripture to find out how it does speak to our current situation. I have neglected my family because I have wanted to hold on to my idols. Those things that I thought brought meaning and relief and satisfaction to my life. And now I live with the deep darkness of regret. Fathers, lead your families. Lesson number three, don't come to terms with sin. Don't come to terms with sin. See, uh, the wickedness in this event here is not only what happened, but in how easily Hamar and Shechem come to terms with their sins and fail to see the wickedness. See, if you go back to verses 8 through 12, um, while Hamar's and Sikkim's offer is generous, did you notice that there's no repentance? There's not even the slightest confession of wrongdoing. And matter of fact, they've uh, moved on. It seems that Shechem is somewhat of a romantic um, and, and thus they're defining the right to marry based upon Shechem's feelings towards Dinah. And then it becomes a business transaction as if the silver lining is how good it's going to be for the economy. As a matter of fact, when Hamor has to convince all the fighting men 
um, to get circumcised. Oh, this is going to be an argument, right? How, how are you going to get these fighting men to get circumcised? He spins the deal this way. Look at the beginning of verse 23. Uh, he says, Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? <laughs> Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. We live in a very wicked world that quickly comes to terms with its sins and fails to see its wickedness. And Jacob seems to have come to terms and not seen that wickedness. And then we do, our families become the fallout. Regret. Fourthly, lesson number four. God's people also sin. You and I, we've, we've justified. We have justified our sin by using the sacred to cover with great regret. So how often have you gossiped and then camouflaged it by sharing a prayer request? Or how often have you struck your loved one's soul with hateful words and then you have camouflaged it with a righteous anger against their sin? Or how often have you failed to biblically lead camouflaged with a demand for submission? Or how often have you failed to trust God with your circumstances camouflaged with being prudent with your resources? And the list goes on and on. We, we justify our sin using the sacred as the cover, and that's what Jacob's sons did here. See, over against kind of this generosity and openness on the part of the Shechemites is the scheme of Jacob's sons. Did you notice there in verse 13, they are acting deceitfully. Verse 13. Just like their father. They don't want justice. Oh, no, they want revenge. And they don't want just Hamar and his son to pay. They want the entire city to pay. And so they use the sign of the covenant, circumcision, God's pledge of, of favor to cloak their murderous, murderous intentions. So look at verse 25. So on the third day, when they were sore, this would have been the most painful day probably, fevered would have been developed and most more incapacitated for all the men who are able to fight. So on that day, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came out against the city while it felt secure and killed all of the males. And if that wasn't bad enough, then uh, read on in verses 27 through 29. And so the sons of Jacob then came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. And they took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And God's people, they also sinned with great regret, so that Jacob's concern that we read earlier in verse 30 is well-founded. The immediate consequence was the possible annihilation of Jacob and his family so that you can just kind of put yourself in this moment. This is a dark moment, uh, a dark moment with regretful consequences. And so the question is, in the dark days of regret, where's our hope? Well, in chapter 34, God is not mentioned once. But in chapter 35, interestingly enough, 
God is mentioned 11 times. So let's look at how God's light prevails in our dark days of regret. Now again, we don't know how old Jacob is when he leaves Shechem. As mentioned earlier, he was certainly past his middle age. He's moving towards uh, the end of his life. And despite the many physical problems that come with old age, from a spiritual point of view, if we continue to read on Jacob, about Jacob, it's actually his future uh, days, decades, were the best years of his life. How is that? Well, as I was reflecting back on our time in this series, uh, post Tenebras Lux, After Darkness Light, I noticed something, and that is God speaks. And when he does, light appears. <laughs> Creation story, the most obvious. After Adam and Eve, God speaks good news. In the moral chaos of Noah's day, God speaks. And then last week, Abram, in the darkness of his paganism, God speaks. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 35 and the first two words. God said, there he goes again, he speaks. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So in love, God is gonna give Jacob three reminders. God's gonna give him three reminders in the face of his regret. So we just read the first, and that is in love, God reminds us of his sovereign saving call. In love, God reminds us of his sovereign saving call. In your regret, remember whom God calls. He calls those who are not looking for him and not deserving of him. And so what God does to Jacob is he tells Jacob to go back to the place where he first appeared to Jacob when Jacob is, is, is fleeing Esau. Decades earlier, he tells him, go back to Bethel. The account of that moment is found in Genesis 28. Jacob is not 24 hours on the run from his brother Esau. He has been tipped off by his mother Rebekah that Esau is bent on killing Jacob for stealing his birthright. So at the end of the first day, Jacob has made a significant trek, probably fueled um, by Esau's pursuits. And he comes to, as the ESV says, he comes to, quote unquote, a certain place. A place providentially chosen by God. And it was there where he dreamed. And the text says, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. Now probably a better translation for ladder would be stairs or a flight of steps. And on these stairs, angels are ascending and they are descending on it so that as Jacob is dreaming this, he realizes this is the access point to heaven. Well, the stairs are symbolic of the real access point to heaven for Jacob and for us, and that is this. God's sovereign saving call. And that was what happened to Jacob there with this promise. God said to him on that day, 
He said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God has sovereignly chosen Jacob, a deceiver, a liar, and a thief, and he's called him as his own. So that when Jacob wakes up, he recognizes something sacred has just happened to him. God has chosen him, the deceiver, an undeserving sinner. So the text says he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gates of heaven. (laughs) Bethel means house of God. And now God is, In our text, chapter 35, God is calling Jacob to go back to that place in his story where God sovereignly chose him for his own. So that in the dark days of regret, God wants us to return to that awesome place where we heard his saving call on our life and remind ourselves that God is one who saves sinfully, spiritually dead people. And he calls them, gives them life and calls them to his, himself. So that I think of Ephesians chapter one, verses three and four, which says this, blessed, Paul writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So that God sovereignly chooses sinners who not only sinned in the past, but who will sin in the future, which will lead to future regrets. Despite Jacob's most recent regrets, nothing has changed. So in light of that reminder, look at what Jacob does, verses two through four. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods and they, they had and the rings, these were probably ritual rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the Terebeth tree that was near Shechem. Now, when we read that, uh, we read this account, it strikes us odd that Jacob is aware that there are idols within his own household. It strikes us odd until we begin to realize how we too have idols, even in Christ. So we've made idols out of our careers or our successes or our families or our pleasures our busyness, our leisure, our politics, our spiritual disciplines. But God doesn't waste our regrets through its pain, but rather he takes that pain and reveals what is not worthy of our trust. And so what does Jacob do? Verse four, he hides his idols. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. No, that's too soft. That word hide 
See, we can translate it, he unceremoniously burns them. He, he throws them into a garbage pit. Some of you farmers out there, you, you have your uh, burn pits. That's what this is. He throws it into a garbage pit, and then he buries it, hidden never to be dug up again. And notice where he buries it. He buries it in Shechem. And then he leaves. So he turns from his idols and then he puts on garments appropriate for those who have been chosen by God. And so then again, we go back to the New Testament and Paul takes up this idea of putting on certain things, uh, putting on certain characteristics that are true of us who are in Christ, who have already been chosen and saved by Christ. So he says in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, set apart, loved by God. Put this on, compassion, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So put on, put on like clothes, Christ-likeness. Which of those Today, do you need to particularly put on, beloved? And love, as we're trying to deal with this dark regret, in love, God reminds us of our sovereign, saving call. Secondly, in love, God reminds us of his presence. Look at verses five through seven. So as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. Now I just want you to look at that phrase there at the beginning of verse five, a terror from God. Now, it's not only God's enemies who experience that terror, but it's also God's chosen one. Matter of fact, in chapter 15, when Abram falls asleep and is overcome, it says it's overcome by the fear of God. It's the same phrase. He could have said it's from the terror of God. It is a fear that was described there in chapter 15 as a deep, dark dread. So when one encounters the presence, capital P, the presence of the almighty living God, there is a terror and dread. And that is what happened to the people of the land. God protected Jacob from what he rightfully feared back in chapter 34. But is really instructive to that experience is Jacob's renaming of Bethel. See, when he first met God there years earlier, Jacob thought the spot was a particularly hot spot. And so thus he called it Bethel, the house of God. However, by Genesis 35, Jacob has grown. He's, God is doing a work within him. And now, though he returns to the place, he, his emphasis is not on the place, but upon the God of the place. He calls it El Bethel, which means God of the house of God. His focus is not on the place, but on the God of the place. In your dark places of regret, fill your mind with the character of God. 
Take your thoughts constantly back to who God is and rejoice in God's presence. We think of another man who had great regret, David. In David's dark days of regret, when he acted out of lust, sex, immorality, adultery, deception, betrayal, murder, and hypocrisy. You're thinking about the story of Bathsheba. Convicted of his sin, it's interesting what he does. He enters into the presence of God with prayer. And he says this, Psalm 51, verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your mercy, blot out my transgressions. Remarkable. In the regret of sin, God doesn't want us to flee from his presence, but to draw near to him. That's amazing. James chapter four, verse five, listen to this. He begins this way. He says, do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit? I think there's a capital S there. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for the spirit that he's placed within you. He says, draw near to me. He says, what you'll find is this. He gives more grace. Therefore, it does say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves there to God. See, what we're tempted to do in our sin is we're tempted to kind of almost flee from him. We're tempted to kind of justify our sin. He says, no, 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 don't do that. Submit to what I call sin. Admit, confess. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Look at this. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. <laughs> Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. His light will prevail. In love, God reminds us of his presence. Thirdly, in love, God reminds us of our real identity, of our real identity. Look back at verse 10 and what happens? God speaks again. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name and so he called his name Israel. And what we find here is that God has naming rights of his own. God's the owner. And he can name what his possessions, whatever he wants it. You are his treasured possession if you are in Christ. And so Jacob was his treasured possession. He says, Jacob, you no longer Jacob. You are Israel. Now, this isn't the first time that God has named Jacob Israel. This is only a reminder of what has already happened to him. See, about 15 years before this, uh, or 15 years, uh, not before this, but 15 years in the past, uh, he has served his uncle. Jacob has served his uncle Laban, and he needs to get out of that. He needs to get back to Canaan, but he doesn't really want to do that directly. So what does he do? Guess what? He lies. He deceives. Uh, he, he's, he's on the run again. 
Now, he knows that he hasn't spoken to his brother Esau in those 15 years. And so the last time he spoke to his brother, or actually he wasn't speaking to his brother, the last time he knew his brother, he knew his brother was out for him to kill him. And so he's returning back to Canaan and he sends out scouts as he's going back to Canaan and he discovers scouts come back and they say, you better watch out. Esau's on his way and he's got 300 armed men. And so you would think like he thought, and that is, he said, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. And so what he did is he separated himself from his family so they would not be the collateral damage of what might happen to Jacob. And so then on the night before he's going to meet Esau, an interesting thing happens, and that is he's alone and he encounters a man, but not any ordinary man, the pre-incarnate Christ, the man, And this God-man engages Jacob in a wrestling match. And that's the order in the text. It says, the man wrestled with him. In other words, God, I'm just, sorry, Jacob didn't wrestle with God. It was God wrestled with Jacob. And that order is important because it is God who comes to wrestle with Jacob to bring him to a point of both physical and spiritual submission. It was to reduce Jacob to a place of emptiness. It was to fatigue him. It was to get him to the end that he would stop striving. <laughs> Have you ever wrestled with God? You've wanted your way. You're persistent in some course that you know is contrary to what God wants for your life and he's striving with you. He's fighting you. Most of us have fought with God at some period of our Christian walk. Well, Jacob, he kept up the struggle all through the night and I don't know how he managed it, but I do know that his determination to hang in there was no greater than our frequent determination to have our own way, attempting to win God over to our idea of what is right and wrong. But God will have nothing of it. And again, isn't that the way of sin? Sin hangs on. It refuses to give up. So what did God do to Jacob? He put his hip out of joint. He hobbled him. <laughs> he gave him a permanent hobble so he couldn't wrestle anymore. God wins and in that loss, Jacob surrenders. And then does this. He asks for a blessing. So God blesses him with a new name, Israel. Or literally, God strives, or we could even translate it, God prevails. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's your name, Israel. You, you've been placed into Israel. You're part of Israel. That is, God prevailed over you. It's the best loss you could ever get. God prevails. So in our text, God reminds Jacob again of his identity. See, that's how the gospel is. We never move away from it. 
But rather, we've got to be reminded over and over and over again of our identity. And our identity is that God has prevailed over us. And so in the regret of sin and the sin that we even have now in that darkness, God says, don't forget your name. Don't forget your identity. I win. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so if God is using regret in your life to reveal sin, embrace your identity, God prevails. Back in chapter 32, when it was clear that God had won, it's interesting what Jacob did at that point. In his weakened state, he clung to the man and said, I won't let go until you bless me. And God said, oh, I'd love to bless you. <laughs> let me give you a new name. Let me change your identity. <laughs> On this side of the cross, let's cling to the incarnate man of whom we celebrate. He will bless you. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and blessed it and said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. See, he, he gave his body for our regrets. We were praying before in our first service, we were praying before and someone prayed, just this wonderful thought. And that is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, as Jesus was, uh, as Jesus, it's described as Jesus, he's, he's looking forward to the joy. He's in the garden, just imagine him in the garden and he's asking the father, father, would you let this cup pass, pass beyond me? I, can I go, can we do something else? But then out of joy of knowing that his death is going to save us from our regrets, he said, oh, no, 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 your will, Father, not mine. Jesus Christ took our regrets, took the sin of our regrets in his body and died on the cross and shed, the, shed his blood for the forgiveness of those sins that we might be blessed, that God might prevail over us. Today, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're, you're feeling God striving He wins. Trust him. Trust him today because what he wants you to do is he wants you to cling on to his son as your Lord and Savior and he will bless you with a new name, a new identity. Trust him today. Father, we pray. Help us. Help us to cling to your son, your incarnate son. Help us to cling to him again today. The one who for the joy set before him endured the cross died for the sins of our regrets so that we could have joy as well. So we thank you for that, Father. Take these regrets. Take the sins of these regrets. Help us to be again re reminded as we take this bread and this cup. Remind us again that your covenant hasn't changed. It's, it's renewed, not for the sake that you need to be reminded. We need to be reminded, Father, of what you've done for us. And so help us to enjoy this supper the forgiveness has been received there and the joy that we have. We thank you for it. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.